Good morning, College Park. Today's passage will be coming from Exodus 17, 1 through 14. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with, with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So glad you're here today. Take your Bibles. Let's go over to Exodus 17 and... As you're turning there, um, this week um, there will be a, a radio program on uh, Moody Radio through Revive Our Hearts, and uh, the uh, title of that program is uh, When the Heartbeat Goes Silent. And um, uh, about uh, six months ago, my wife and I um, told the entire story of our journey uh, with the loss of our daughter in 2004, and uh, we had never told that whole story before. And the conversation with um, Nancy Lee DeMoss uh, about some things was telling her what God had done in her life through that. She asked us to come and record four days of a radio program. And uh, so everything I've learned about suffering, uh, things like the who question, more important than the why question, hard is hard, hard's not bad, all those things, all that was through the seminary of that suffering. And uh, so that's going to be uh, broadcast this week. I would ask you to pray uh, with us that God would use that. And also, if you ever wonder about what, what was that story about, well, here it is. And uh, it's, it, was, it was an emotional story to tell for sure, not an easy one, but one we're praying that God would just use um, to help um, really honor his name through that very difficult but very, very helpful season um, of our life. So pray with us, won't you, that uh, God will use that. It's 11 o'clock, um, uh, Monday through Thursday uh, this week. Uh, that broadcast is Revive Our Hearts. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us now as we study Exodus 17. Father, we uh, are so grateful that your word gives us clarity. And it is the means by which we can understand life and godliness and how we ought to live. And I pray today that our hearts today would be filled with love and worship for you. 
and also a great sense of confidence in the work that you have done for us in uh, being our provider by being personally involved in every aspect of our lives, whether it's blessing or bruising, you're there. You, you've never left us alone. And so we want to come today with anticipation that you're going to speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To be honest with you, the book of Exodus is not an easy book to interpret. It's a challenging book to kind of get your mind and head around, and that's for a couple reasons. In the first place, it's narrative. So there's all kinds of stories. They're great stories, but part of the challenge of the interpreter is to figure out what's a story element that has a message to it and what's just part of the story. The challenge is is that sometimes you could take a narrative and you could try and make a point out of it and make it much bigger than maybe what the biblical author intended. The danger is that you would um, over-spiritualize or over-analyze or somehow create allegories that really aren't really in the text. And so that's part of the challenge of the book of Exodus. And one of the challenges that I faced every week as I prepare is, Lord, is... Is there a connection here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or is I, am I just force-fitting it? I read some books about how to preach Christ from the Old Testament before going into this series, and it's a challenge. It really is. In fact, if you pray, as you pray for Sunday, if you pray, you could pray, Lord, help Mark with the blinking cursor. And what I mean by that is every once in a while, it, the, the screen is blank, and it's this cursor that just says, go ahead, try and write something. Just blink, blink, blink. And if you've ever faced a blinking cursor, you know that you almost want to talk to it and go, you're not going to give me this time, blinking cursor. This, you could pray that God just continues to help us unfold this glorious, glorious book. Because there's, there's beautiful things here. Then every once in a while... A New Testament writer gives us a key that helps unlock the Old Testament. And gratefully, today is one of those texts. The Apostle Paul makes a direct connection for us between the New Testament and the Old. In 1 Corinthians 10, this is what he says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And here it comes. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Today in Exodus 17, we're going to look at the moment of the rock, and we're going to see the parallels between the Old Testament and the New. We're going to look first at the moment when Moses struck the rock and provided water for the people. And then secondly, the battle with the Amalekites and how he goes to a hill, raises his hand, or his hands, and God wins the battle for them and through them. And what we're going to see in both of these stories is that God's greatest provision isn't just deliverance from slavery in Egypt. His greatest deliverance isn't just bringing the people through the Red Sea. It's not even just the provision of daily manna. But the beautiful message within this text is this, that God's greatest provision is Himself. God's greatest provision is Himself. In the rock, we see Him stand and come under judgment and then provide for his people. 
And in the battle of the Amalekites, we see that God himself is engaged in the battle with the Amalekites such that the people of Israel win the day, but they win it differently than they've won it before. So let's look at these two accounts and see what we can learn. In the first place, we see that the people begin to quarrel with God. The people of Israel, like all sinful human beings, like you and me, we we learn lessons slowly, don't we? And Israel learns lessons slowly. I mean, I'm sure that you, like me, think of lots of things in your life that you thought, I I should have learned this by now. I remember on my 42nd birthday, my wife said, well, how does it feel to be 42? I said, you know, I thought I would be more mature by now. (laughs) I thought I would learn, have learned a lot of lessons that I haven't learned yet. I don't know about you, but every year, my annual review with our elders, the same things come up. And I, I can change those things incrementally, but they're fundamentally not going to be able to change. I just, those, those things come slowly, and so change comes slowly for God's people. And as a result, they come to the um, area called Rephidim, which kind of ironically means resting place, and they discover that there is no water. Not only is there not bitter water, there's absolutely no water whatsoever. And as a result, the people of Israel fall into a pattern. This is the fourth time that they fall into this pattern of grumbling. They have expectations of how life should be. We should have water, and there isn't. So there's a gap. And as a result of that gap, there is a spirit of grumbling that emerges. They lash out at Moses and they blame him for their troubles. Look at verse 2 and 3. Therefore the people quarreled, that's a new word, people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So Moses is going to help them see that, that their quarreling and their grumbling is, is actually not just with Moses. It's actually a theological problem, a spiritual problem. But the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So here we have a familiar pattern that emerges again. But this time, though, there's some new aspects. In the first place, the text says that the people of Israel quarreled with Moses. So their their grumbling now takes on a new level. They're not only complaining and grumbling, but now they're actually quarreling and they begin to be demanding their, their internal rebellion that used to manifest itself with, with just complaints now actually becomes more adversarial. And Moses, in effect, says, you're, you're not just dealing with me here, you're actually testing the Lord. You see, despite all that they had seen, despite the Red Sea deliverance, despite the fact that God had given them sweet water when it was bitter, despite the fact that God every single day is still providing manna, when a gap comes in their life, the first place they go is, you got to give us water to drink and it's your fault, and then... Later on, you'll see they begin to question, is God even among us or not? I mean, they they just run right there. Even though they've all of these lessons, they they run right to the negative conclusion. They they make a number of accusations against Moses and God. Here's a few of them. Verse 2, they accuse Moses and God of neglect. They say, give us water to drink. Accuse Moses of being negligent. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? In other words, this is a bad idea. Accuse him of murder. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us with thirst? As if that was Moses' motive in the first place. But they're afraid and so they say things that are pejorative and somewhat ridiculous. They accuse Moses and God even of setting in motion their ruin and their death. And my guess is every once in a while you've probably thought the same thing. Like, God, why have you done this to me? This is killing us. Why why, why is all these things taking place? Don't you know that we're struggling down here and... Aren't you so glad God doesn't answer every question you ask? 
I'll tell you why. You know what I mean? You know, aren't you glad God doesn't do that? And then, then lastly, look at verse 7. I mean, at the end of the day, what the people are really struggling with is, is they feel like God has abandoned them. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, here's what they said, is the Lord among us or not? That's a huge statement. It's a dangerous statement to make. In a sense, they're saying, are we God's people or not? Is he really with us or is this cloud thing just an illusion? Is what we believe really real? Are we really the firstborn? Does God really care for us? Because we're like seriously thirsty here. God has left us. Is he really among us or not? And, and, and my guess is there's been times in your life when, when things have gone really badly and you said something like, you know, I don't even know if this Christianity thing is real. Maybe you've just, you've cried out to God and you just said, I don't even know if you exist. I don't even know if I believe in you anymore. And you know what? Aren't you glad that God's big enough for those kind of questions? I want you to be careful because you can cross the line and be sinful. You'll see how God handles that. But as you're going to see in this text, you know, God's big enough to handle those kind of questions. He knows our frame. He knows what we're like. But the fact of the matter is, is all it took was a little lack of water. And the people of God, despite everything they had seen, despite all of these miraculous provisions, they quickly go down the road of, it's over, we're dead, and God isn't even real. <laughs> the reality is God was testing them. And in their hearts, what was going on is this was unpeeling a, a problem with God. And that's what hardship does. It, it, it peels back the onion of our pretense. We act as, though, hey, I got it all together. It's all good. I believe in God. Then suffering comes. And we're like, God, it's not even real. <laughs> and we just, we go from extremes. The psalmist said this about this moment. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa. Those words mean um, testing and, and, and quarreling. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. And then he says this, though they had seen my work. So despite the fact that, that, that Israel had seen all of these things that God had done, when difficulties come, they were so quick to say, God's forgotten about us. He's abandoned us. And they begin to quarrel with the Lord. I want you to see what happens, though. And this is so unbelievably comforting. In the midst of all of these questions, God puts himself on trial. And in this moment, we get a picture of the pathway of redemption. That God takes all of their questions and their quarrelings and says, all right, let's go ahead and let's, let's have a fact-finding mission here. And yet God is the one who positions himself in order to be on trial. Moses appeals to God in verse 4 that the people are angry. They're about to stone him. And Verse 5, God's solution is this. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. So there's sort of this formal processional thing that's going to happen. And take in your hand the staff 
with which you struck the Nile and go. So this staff is a symbol of God's authority. It's what Moses used to strike the Nile and it turned to blood. It's what he took with him and waved it over the Red Sea and God parted it. This is a, a rod symbolizing divine authority. And what God is doing is setting the stage here for a dramatic illustration to teach Israel and us a lesson about God's heart and God's character. Moses is told, gather the Israel Israelites, gather the elders... God says that I will stand before you there. Look at verse 6. Behold. In other words, this is, this is big news. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. That's unbelievable that he would say that. In effect, what God is saying, I want you to take the elders and I'm going to put myself on trial in front of you. You think I haven't provided for you? You think I haven't taken care of you? You're asking, am I among you or not? I'm going to show you. And so before, he says, behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. And then he says this, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So don't miss what happens here. God God says, I will stand before you. Now, listen, church, this is the God of the universe. This is the great I am. This is the God who delivered his people out of Israel. And he is going to stand before his people and willingly endure, absorb their own scorn. They're going to put him on trial. God's going to put himself on trial. This is as outrageous as it is dangerous. He's going to stand before him, and then Moses is going to take the rod of God, the symbol of divine authority. And God says, I'm going to stand before you, and I want you to strike the rock. And in that act of striking the rock, God then provides water for his people. The divine plan here is for the people who have unfairly accused God to be then treated kindly by the unfairness in their actions towards their provider God. God's plan was to provide life for His people. But the way in which He provided life, don't miss this, the way in which He provided life was by putting Himself on trial. So the people are quarreling, they are testing, and yet God says, I will put Myself on trial, and by striking Me, life will be given to you. I mean, if you read the New Testament and know anything about the cross, this is completely a picture of what is to come in the New Testament. This is a a foundational reality of what redemption in God's economy is. That God takes sinful people who deserve to be on trial themselves and God instead goes on trial and in the absorption of unfairly uh, of unfairly being treated God provides for people who themselves should be on trial. So what God does here, church, don't miss this, is He merges the sinfulness of His people, judgment that is unfair, and the provision for people who don't deserve it. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul connects the gospel to this event? I mean, is it any wonder? That rock, he says, was Christ. They all drank of the spiritual drink. They drank of the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Over and over and over. The the New Testament gives us this, this concept of redemption being the means by which God takes the place, stands on trial when He doesn't deserve that. I mean, just just listen to the Old Testament. Old Testament, Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then listen to this. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. On Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we are healed. I mean, you can't read Exodus 17 or Isaiah 53 without having a heart that just says, God, you're unbelievable. John chapter 4, Jesus uses the same metaphor of water. He says this, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, that's what you saw in Anna's testimony. That's why you stood and clapped. Because you see in her, what happens in conversion when someone gives their heart and life to Christ, suddenly now they are infused with a bubbling stream of life that now comes because of the Spirit of the living God. It's the transformation that takes place from the inside out. So the model is that God stands in the place of judgment. He embraces undeserved punishment. He provides for His people. And this flowing water now becomes a a metaphor by which God's people receive life. The Bible tells us that Jesus came and He dwelled among us. He came and yet He was rejected while He lived among us. He was unfairly judged. He bore unjust punishment. He absorbed the wrath of God. He hangs on the cross in order to provide spiritual life. He says this in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're an Old Testament Jew, or a Jew and you you know your Old Testament rather, you hear you will never thirst. You know what he's talking about. It's, It's that Christ gives ultimate spiritual satisfaction. And you need to know today that if you're on a spiritual journey trying to figure out the Claims of the Bible, essentially the claim of the Bible is this, that Jesus took your place. The the way which God works is He takes the place that you deserve. He absorbs your penalty so that by receiving Him, you can have life anew that begins on the inside. Now the implications of this are many. The first is this, that when you understand what God does in this moment, when you understand that they're grumbling and quarreling, and yet God says, I will stand before you, and to think that the Creator of the universe figuratively in this moment is struck, let alone that the Son of God was struck, it creates, it must create within your heart a sense of love and gratitude and worship. When you read Exodus 17, you can't help think of the fact that your Savior was struck, He took your place, He took the condemnation that you deserved, and in your place condemned he stood such that you marvel and say in your soul what a kind of savior is this 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 is the way that god operates it also secondly is the fundamental upside down logic of the christian faith meaning that what christianity essentially about is is about love and self-sacrifice and consideration of others even when we are unfairly treated so some of you, you've, you've come here to worship today and, and there are scenarios in your life when it is just straight up unfair what's going on to you. 
What's, what's happening to you? What's, what's come upon your life? And the reality is God still calls you to, to self-sacrifice, to love, to, to be in a, a marriage and continue putting yourself out there, to, to lay your life out for a child, to, to care deeply for a friend, to, to embrace the reality that God has placed you in and to continually pour yourself out. And you may wonder, how can I do this? The answer is you do it the way Jesus did. You consider others to be more important than yourselves. And that is the upside-down, crazy, radical, life-transforming logic of the gospel. And the only reason you would do this is because this is exactly the way that God has treated you. And then third, the, the, the evident presence of humility is stunning. So God takes a position which is infinitely below what He really deserves, and yet He embraces it in order to lovingly provide for His people. There, there's no greater example of humility than this, which is why pride in the Bible, is the worst possible of all sins. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this, what do you have that you didn't receive? And the answer is nothing. That's why the Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So how is it that we embrace humility? Why do we embrace humility? Because it was God who goes and stands on trial. It's Jesus who comes and becomes the one who absorbs the wrath of God, which is why the Bible offers Christ as the ultimate example and why the Scriptures say so much negative, negatively about the matter of pride. So the text tells us that Jesus, Jesus is the rock that was struck. He's the example that we should follow. But there's another aspect here to Exodus 17, and we see also that God is the banner we trust. So again, His greatest provision is Himself, and we see Himself being provided in this matter of judgment, but we also see that God provides Himself in being the banner. Prior to this time, all of um, Israel's battles have not been physical battles per se, they've been internal battles, struggling with grumbling, complaining, And now we see them moving into hostile territory. Before, the way that they fought was to be still and see the salvation of the Lord. They were, they were called to wait upon God and to see Him work. And so their, their struggle was to learn to trust Him, to rely upon Him. But in this case, they, they come to a new battle where they're not called to wait, they're actually called to fight. And so part of the Christian life involves sometimes waiting and doing nothing, which is never a waste. But there are other times when God calls us to action, to do things, to, to, to be able to sort of wage the warfare, so to speak, of what it means to follow Him. And the way that Israel has to fight this battle is instructive for us. Look at verse 8 of chapter 17. We learn that the people of Amalek come out to attack Israel. Now the Amalekites were distant relatives of Israel. They descended from Esau... We have Jacob, from which Israel comes. Esau, from the Amalekites, are from there. And there was continual conflict between these two groups of people throughout their history. From what we know, from the background of the Amalekites, they were a nomadic people. They likely domesticated the camel. They learned how to use the camel for military purposes. And they lived by attacking other nations and plundering their wealth. And so they apparently saw an opportunity in attacking Israel, and so they came out to see if they could defeat the Israelites. What's more, 
Israel has been slaves for 400 plus years. And so they're, they're not prepared militarily for this kind of attack. They weren't battle ready, so to speak. So Amalek was probably seizing on the opportunity to attack Israel in her weakness. And this really becomes the first battle that the people of Israel face. And what they're going to learn is the principle of dependent victory. So before, they just saw God do what God did. And they just stood still and they saw the salvation of the Lord. But in this case, they're actually going to have to get into the battle. And yet in that battle, God still wants them to learn some things that even in what they are doing, they still need to be dependent upon Him. One of the values of when you're young and inexperienced and you know nothing and God calls you to do something is you know you're young and inexperienced and so you cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Would you please help me here? And maybe when your first kids came along, you're like, Lord, help me. And you raise your first, your second, your third, and you're like, I got this, right? Or you get in your first job. You're like, Lord, I don't know how to do this job. And you got another job, and you've done this for a while. So you're like, I got this. I got... So would you agree with me that it is far more dangerous to think I got this than the thought, the thought of, you know, I don't know what I'm doing? I think it's the, the, the longer I live, the less I really know what I'm doing. I mean, that's the point, right? The fact of the matter is, is that part of following Jesus means that even though you think you know what you're doing, you're still being dependent upon Him. And that's the lesson that Israel needs to learn. This is the first time we hear the name Joshua in the book of Exodus. He'll become a major player, the one who follows Moses as the leader of Israel. His name means the Lord is salvation. It's actually a derivative from which the name Jesus comes Moses calls Joshua to find enough men for the battle. And then Moses is going to go on the hill and he's going to set himself in a position where he's going to seek God's help. So the the idea, the picture is that, that Joshua and the men are going to be in the valley and they're going to be fighting this battle. And Moses is going to be on the mountain and he's going to be interceding, some sort of position of prayer. And the concept will be clear that when the intercession happens, they win. When the intercession wanes, they lose. In other words, while they're really fighting and they're really in a real battle, they are linked to a power that is beyond themselves. It's not just that God provides manna every day, but He also provides empowerment when they're in the middle of their battles. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. There's the point. So he becomes a conduit of God's power. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. So you need to know that while prayer isn't specifically mentioned, what is very clear, and it seems very obvious, that there's a connection between Moses' raised hands and the success of the people on the ground. When his hands were lowered, the battle turned for the worse. The text goes on to tell us that Moses was unable to sustain this position by himself. The battle apparently was long, and so his hands grew weary. And as he dropped his hands, the battle went poorly. When his hands went back up, the battle was victorious, and so therefore Aaron and her, it's a beautiful picture, are able to hold his hands for him. Verses 10 to 11 tells us they helped Moses by holding his hands steady until the going down of the sun. It's a beautiful image here. If you've ever been in a really, really hard place and had a brother or a sister come around you and just pray over you, and you felt the healing grace of God. You know, you know what this is like when somebody is holding your hands. In fact, sometimes we'll, 
We'll even use this as a prayer form in one of our Fresh Encounter services that someone holds up their hands and then we hold their arms. And it's a, it's a very humbling and yet sustaining feeling to know that there are people who are holding up your arms in prayer. That is what the body of Christ was meant to do. That's what Aaron and her do for Moses. The effect of this prayer, look at verse 17, is an important victory. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So there's going to be judgment there. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That little phrase, um, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, means if anyone opposes the work of the Lord, then judgment will come. So God not only wants to remind the Israelites that the Amalekites are under judgment, But there's also something significant here about this construction of the altar and the statement, the Lord is my banner. And so, again, we see the rock that was struck, the Lord is our provider, and now we see the Lord is our banner. That word in Hebrew means signal pole. It's the kind of pole that you would raise or a sign in order to rally troops or to rally people to a particular point. It's a pole that you would hoist so that people would know we're going to head this direction and this is the way that we're going to go and this is the battle that we're going to fight and this is the unity of what we are going to be called to do. Interestingly enough, this word is used in Isaiah 11 for the Messiah. Isaiah 11.10 says this, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glory. So the idea is that the Messiah will be a signal pole, a, a light that will be cast to the world, that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will gather and come, and under the banner of Christ, the Messiah, will they be assembled in God's presence. In the immediate context, though, in Exodus 17, it's simply that Moses is making the point that while Israel was fighting the battle on the ground, while they were engaged in warfare, it was the Lord who was their rallying cry, that the Lord is our banner. That the fact of the matter is, as they were fighting, they were really active, they were really doing things, but that battle, at the end of the day, really was the Lord's. Like the psalmist says, that the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. Part of what's happening here is that Israel is learning that God is their provider. Not just in terms of manna, not just in terms of deliverance from uh, the Red Sea, not just in terms of victory over the Egyptians, but God is the provider of himself in terms of empowerment that when they're in the middle of the battle, that God's able to help them. He doesn't just help them by having manna on the ground. I mean, that's one way. But it means when they're in the middle of a tough fight, they can be assured that that God is indeed their banner, that He is the one who will fight for them. And can I remind you today that God is still our banner. It's not just the banner of the Israelites, but He also is the banner of those who name the name of Christ. 
want to remind you today, friends, that you're in a real spiritual battle. Some of you are here today, and the fact of the matter is, if you were to draw a line, and this was the side of God's kingdom, you would not be on that side. You're, you're not in God's kingdom, and the fact of the matter is, there is nothing about what I'm telling you that the enemy wants you to hear. Nothing. And what's going on in the battle for your soul is not just a battle of what you will believe. It is a matter of a battle between good and evil, between right and wrong, between God and Satan over who you really belong to. And part of the beauty of what we heard in Anna's testimony is that in a singular moment she was transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That indeed the scriptures are true. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that one heart, one life at a time, people are redeemed from darkness and they're brought to everlasting life. And that, friends, is a spiritual battle that is as real as we are alive today. There are spiritual forces at work behind the scenes. The enemy is still opposing God's people. There is still a real battle. And that means that secondly, this text calls us to be reminded of our need of dependency through prayer. Prayer is part of the way that we fight. It's not just that we pray because we have need, but we pray because... It is the way that God pours out His grace and power on us. Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says this, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, praying at all times in the Spirit. So prayer is the air that Christian soldiers breathe. It's a conduit for God's power and a reminder that we cannot fight this battle on our own. There have been times in my life when I am not 100% sure, but I'm like 98% sure that the reason something didn't go well was because I just started going along with the flow and I wasn't as dependent upon the Lord as what I needed to be. And so God intentionally brings opposition in order to remind me, oh, that's right, I need to seek Him. Because the reality is when things go well, my seeking of Him tends to diminish. So the reality is hard times come and difficulties come because God values more our seeking Him than He does things going easy so we can be successful. So the lesson that He wants Israel to learn is that I am the God who provides manna, I'm the God who leads you through the wilderness, and I am also the God who can help empower you for the battles that you face. And some of you, you're here today and you're in the middle of a really tough fight, and the hope and the beauty and the lesson are all the same, and it's this, that you cannot fight this battle on your own. You need God to help you, and He will, and He promises God's provision for you is not just help, His provision for you is His personal presence. It is that He is there. It's why He became a man. It's why He lived on earth. So that when you come to Him to appeal to Him for grace and mercy and help in time of need, you can have confidence that He understands. That even though in the back of your mind and heart you think, I'm just praying up and I don't see you. Do you really know what it's like to live on this earth? You know what it's like to hurt? You know what it's like to have this pain? The answer is yes, He does because He came to earth. He lived here. He, He breathed the air we breathe. He lived on a fallen planet. He wept at the things that we weep at. He felt what we felt. He suffered under the presence and the the difficulty of this broken world. He knows. And therefore, when your thoughts go down paths of, do you really know what it's like? The Bible calls us back to be reminded, yes, in fact, so much so, that he lived where you lived, he walked where you walked. And then what's more, he died a death that you should have died. And then here's the final thing, the fact of the matter is, and this is so hopeful to me, that this battle that we fight is a fight that we never fight alone. In... in, one respect, God has supplied one another to help us in this fight. 
Jesus said this, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them. By my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Notice the, the beauty of God's presence, but also His presence in the context of two or three people praying. I remember at a prayer summit back in 2005, in the midst of a very, very challenging season, Savannah was in the womb, and we were so afraid. Every day we woke up and we thought, God, please, you, you've got to let this little girl live. I remember being in a prayer summit and a pastor putting his hand on my head and praying over me and he just prayed, Lord, I pray strength for my brother. And he prayed it over and over and over. And I don't know what happened in that moment, but I'm telling you something clicked in my soul where God opened up a floodgate of trust and I was able to trust in a new way because somebody prayed for me. That's what the church was meant to be. The body of Christ was meant to be able to accomplish together, but He's also supplied for us the Spirit who intercedes with us with words too deep for groaning. So if you're here today and you're like, I don't even know what to pray. Well, that's awesome because the Spirit of God knows what to pray. He's supplied to you a high priest through whom we can appeal for mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. And He's supplied one another where we can agree together in prayer. So what is God's greatest provision? God's greatest provision isn't manna. It's not the crossing of the Red Sea. It's not the ten plagues. God's greatest provision is the provision of himself. In that at the rock, he takes the judgment that the people deserve. They're grumbling. They're quarreling. And he, instead of taking them and putting them on trial, God puts himself on trial. And in his own striking and in his own bruising and in figuratively of having him receive the punishment that the people deserve, then... Mercy and grace and supply is provided to them. And this is the way that God deals with us. Even though we are the criminals, He takes our punishment. God Himself provides for our deliverance. And then, as we walk through life, He promises, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. He's, Jesus is the rock that we struck. He's the banner that we trust. He provides mercy by absorbing judgment and he pours out power when we face struggles in life. So when your soul, because of challenges or difficulties, begins to say things like, is God among us or not? Is this what it means to be a Christian? This is not what I anticipated. Is this what it means to have a Christian marriage? This is not what I... This is what it means to raise Christian kids. This is not what I wanted. When your life gets to a point and you begin to wonder, is God really real or not? That's when you need to be taken back to the rock that was struck and to remember the banner that you're supposed to trust in because at the end of the day, there's nobody who's provided more than God has provided for you and nothing greater that He has provided than the provision of Himself. I had no idea what songs we were going to sing today. Eric had told me at the beginning of the week, I completely forgot while I was putting together this message. I thought, you know what? This would be a great song for us just to think about as we end. In the first service, I was moved to tears. I was like, Lord, you are amazing. So fun to be a part of what God's doing. Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done. Knowing every victory was your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way. Got some of those? But with joy our hearts will say, Never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. 
you are faithful. God, you are faithful. So when your heart begins to say, is God real or not? When you begin to wonder, how are we going to be able to make it through this? When you think of your sins and can God really cleanse me because of all of these things? Can I really start anew? Can God really wipe away my past and make me completely new? The answer to that question is this. Never once did you ever walk alone. Never once did he leave you on your own. And he is faithful. Oh God, you are faithful. God's provision, the greatest provision, is the provision of himself. Lord Jesus, would you help my brothers and sisters today who who feel the, the weight of what it means to walk. And at times it feels like they're walking all alone. And today would you remind them that it's just not the way that you work. When the enemy would tempt us and suggest that we've been abandoned, will you bring us back to great and important truths that there's there's nothing that can separate us from your love? Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here today who need in their small group or maybe after this service just to have some brothers or sisters pray for them because their heart is breaking and aching and they're not able to sustain the journey that they're on on their own. And I thank you that you've given us the church and one another to help us to walk during difficult and hard days. And then finally, God, for those who on this day are on the other side of your kingdom, I pray that today would be a day that they see the beautiful reality of what you have done for them in Christ. And today would be a day when they move from walking completely alone to having a relationship with Christ. Oh, would you do that today, God? Thank you that your greatest provision is you. Help us to believe that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, there'll be some folks up after or here up afterwards who would love to pray with you if there's something going on in your life that uh, they could help you with, all right? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming.